you're not dead and you're here now and actually tomorrow you will be alive hopefully right what what changes in terms of what you begin to take actions on because all all ideas need the physical body to begin to move in that direction so what's the step what's the thing that you're going to step into that's connected to this deeper thing that you've been sitting on welcome to the stay grounded podcast I'm your host, Raj Jana, founder of Liberate, and it's my mission to help you become the most grounded, loving, and authentic version of yourself that you can be. Each week, I interview experts in the fields of mindset, spirituality, and emotional well-being. My brilliant guests share their tools, stories, and unique perspectives to help you develop the skills you need to show up fully for the people and things that matter most in your life. Now let's dive in. Yo, yo, what's up, everyone, and welcome to... This week's very special episode of Stay Grounded with my dear brother, Mr. John O'Connor. So I'm going to read a quick little bio just about John, and then I'm going to talk about what you're going to learn on the episode. But John is a leadership advisor and master coach who has guided thousands of high performers to align with purpose and fulfillment. With over 10,000 coaching hours under his belt, John skillfully helps people remove inner blocks and embody the freedom to thrive. He runs workshops and retreats and gives talks on topics like resilience, team culture, and conscious leadership. But most importantly, John, to me, is one of the most skilled space holders for men. Um, He's been deep in the men's work movement for years at this point, having supported so many men with their own mental health, with their own inner challenges, with helping them really unlock deeper levels of purpose. And and that's what I, I love most about this specific episode. We really go deep into, you know, modern day masculinity and mental health and what is actually at the root of a lot of uh, mental health challenges uh, in men and women as well. But particularly we, you know, as John is a man and I'm a man, we open up a lot about our own challenges and our own vulnerabilities and our own um inabilities to really sort of effectively navigate the internal landscape that is the chaos of the psyche. (laughs) And, you know, I just love this conversation because, you know, John is so vulnerable. Like he really does go deep into his own journey and he shares with such authentic expression. I mean, I, I just love when people can come on the show and they just remove the mask and allow themselves to be seen. And John just does that in such a beautiful way. Um, from a place of love and service. He talks about the value of men's groups and plant medicine, different uh, modalities for really metabolizing generational trauma. And we talk a lot about the role of sort of like the generational trauma that's contributing to modern day masculinity issues. Um, we talk a lot about uh, suicide. Um, and, you know, I know that can be a sensitive topic for a lot, but John actually opens up about his own story of suicide and how he learn to look at his suicidal thoughts with compassion and how did he navigate the world when he was inside of that state. So if, you know, you're listening to this, I, I at the very least, like it gave me a, a beautiful window of compassion and empathy into the uh, the life of somebody who who was suicidal and, and what that feels like and where that comes from. And I mean, so much more. I mean, you know, uh, when I hung out with John, we were in Boulder, we recorded this live at, at the place I was staying. And um, he's just one of those deep dudes, like, we, he goes on amazing hikes. He has a, a two hour long tea ceremony that it does in the morning. And I actually sat with him in the tea ceremony. It was beautiful. I mean, he's just one of my favorite human beings, super grounded, deep, and just so much to share. And I can't wait for all of you to get to know John. So enjoy this episode. And 
subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're tuning in from. I'm so grateful for your presence and your love. And without further ado, here is the amazing Mr. John O'Connor. Enjoy. John, welcome to the show. I've been enjoying holding a microphone. Yeah? It's been a very... Since I held a microphone. Why? So tell me about that. Like, what's... Well, I have a microphone that I use uh, for my work, but it's on a stand, so I don't have to, like, hold it. So it's been a very long since I've actually held a microphone. I feel like I, it gives me, like, it gives my hand something to do. You know, like, especially when you're, like, sitting there and you're talking, it's like, nice. It's like, hold. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that. When I, uh, 22 years ago, I, I had my last drink of alcohol. Mm. And for a long time, when I went to a party, I always had to have something in my hand. Like, it just was something that I felt naked if I didn't have something in my hand. So, mm. it's really interesting, like, sitting here. I don't <laughs> know how we transition into <laughs> alcohol right from the bat, but, yeah, it just reminds me of, like, wow, I, I don't need anything in my hand to feel relaxed anymore. Well, kind of comes to what I think would be a really fun conversation today, which is all the things we do to help us feel calm versus just becoming calm like it sounds like that was actually a transition for you where you needed something outside of you a, a thing in your hand to kind of get your nervous system into a a relaxed state and now you're just calm er calm <laughs> well it's it ebbs and flows right it's um it, yeah i needed something in my hand i needed something in my mouth i needed something in my lungs you know there were a lot of different things Mm -hmm. um, that I needed in order to down-regulate or feel safe or grounded or at ease. And uh, yeah, there definitely was a point where I became aware of when I stopped using all substances, um, how much I was numbing what was underneath. Mm. So I have this like belief frame now that if you want to know why you do something, just stop doing it for 90 days. And all of the things that you have been slow you know covering up will slowly show themselves usually it might take a little while or it comes right up right away dude that's brilliant um what a brilliant and simple tool super simple it's like you want to know why you do it let's stop it for 90 days and then start to track what starts to come up and usually for some people for me at that time i was i didn't know what i didn't know at the time so i wasn't even aware of what I was covering up. So when someone said, you know, you're drinking to cover up stuff, I'm like, no way. Like I'm drinking because I'm stressed or I just want to have a fun time or a good time. There's no reason why I'm drinking. There's no like deeper thing that I'm hiding. So that it was below the level of awareness. I had no idea until I stopped. And then someone was able to reflect back and I was in a conversation where we began to capture the things that were coming up. So I didn't even realize those were connected. So just a little shout out to therapists out there. Yeah. <laughs> I had a great therapist at the time that really helped me to stay in that and realize that there were things that I was covering up. What was, what were, what was the support you needed during that time frame that allowed you to create lasting shifts? Oh, there were so many. Um, so one was a community. So like other people who were on the same path, because I think at the time I didn't know any anybody that didn't drink or smoke pot or do drugs or, you know, back then it's 22 years ago. 
psychedelics were a thing back then in New York City, but it was more in the club scene. It was different than it is today. It's not therapeutic. Yeah, very different. Although I was definitely trying to find God and, you know, I was using it, quote unquote, in like, in a cathartic way, because I was always seeking to go deeper when I was yeah. using them. But I think at the time was a community of like-minded people um, to help just support the infrastructure and the environment so that I was environments that were supportive of like the new belief and the new pattern I was trying to set. So I was, you know, you look at any, you know, atomic habits or all these things, like, can you set up an environment that supports your new patterns? So I call it setting the pattern. So how do I set a pattern? I surround myself with people that are either living that pattern or supporting that pattern. Yeah. Um, the second thing was someone to reflect back my blind spots and my bullshit, you know? So I think, and I can only speak for guys, and I've done a lot of men's work. I've led a lot of men's retreats um, over the past 17 years. You know, we guys have a really good, uh, we can spin anything to ourselves and to other people. And so I needed someone who could help me kind of sort through my bullshit. How do you, so I guess this is where like, you know, I find my ego to be really strong. And so like, it's like when you're in like receiving feedback mode, like how did you go from a place of like kind of putting that ego to the side? Like, cause I think that you can be so stuck in your own shit that it's tough to pull yourself out of it. But it sounds like, you know, that was a, a thing that, like, were you just so tired of your life and the circumstances of that life that it made it easier? Or was there another way that maybe even this person that was reflecting to you sort of, like, allowed your ego to kind of, like, fall? Well, I think I got it. I think I, I think I literally got a beat out of me because I was in a big fight. So there was that piece. You know, I was in a, a bar at four o'clock in the morning that I shouldn't have been in with a friend drunk. And he got into, he thought he saw a friend from high school and he went up behind him and bear hugged him oh. and turned out to not be his friend. And so they started beating him up. Oh wow. And so I remember kind of walking over, you know, doing my, you know, verbal jujitsu of just like, Hey guys, all right, he is an asshole and I'm glad you took care of him cause he needed a little ass whooping, but we'll, we'll go now. Like that's enough. You kind of beat him up enough. And I like picked him up, was walking out and then we just got, pounced on by like eight people so it's eight on two or nine on two and the owner of the bar and the bouncers so it was just like i'm lucky i only got one kind of clean shot on my jaw and everything else i kind of like ducked and covered myself i remember getting my like i was like a green belt or something in vada kempo when i was 17 and to get my next belt you had to get beat up for like an hour and so you're exhausted and people were just pummeling you yeah. And so they just teach you how to like protect yourself when you're exhausted. And I think I, that like skill set came into play, but it was one of those moments where like it could have gone bad and we could died, could easily have gotten killed in that context. And that was when I stopped. Like that was like the beginning of like, okay, like enough is enough. Like, what am I doing here? This is stupid. Um, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm. So I think there was a combination yeah. of being sick and tired of being sick and tired, having someone support you in recent and that was a big pattern because i started drinking when i was like 13 pretty heavily so this was when i was 25 when i stopped started this th that conversation and also i was in acting conservatory at the time doing meisner work and it was all about how do you feel and at the time i it felt like i had spaghetti in my chest and so i i didn't have a lot of those fine tip emotional nuances that all these other actors had and um 
I remember telling a friend of mine who was in class, like I just was struggling in a lot of different areas. He's like, you should go see my guy. He's great. It just turned out that he was an alcohol, drug and alcohol counselor, this therapist. And so when we were talking, this therapist was like, you know, how, tell me about your drinking. I'm like, I drink like everybody else. I smoke pot, I drink, and you know, I didn't think I had a problem at the time. It wasn't until I stopped going back to, if you want to know why you do something, stop doing it. And I realized, wow, I have a really hard time not doing this. And w when you say hard time, were the emotions the hard part? Like what was hard about, like if you could actually even break it down, get really like more granular, it's like what are the aspects of, of that hard? Yeah, so like I'm trying to like track it to like even today, like thinking about, you know, so the, the you know, non- physical pain, emotional pain, emotional dysregulation, pain. uncomfortable in the nervous system, spinning out in my mind, just wanting to kind of get out, not feeling like I had enough space, reactive, angry, yeah. triggered, um, just feeling tight and tense and like I needed to kind of create space somehow. Yeah. There's that piece. Um, so that was, that was really difficult and, and how I would manage those things was to drink. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was the coping totally. for the dysregulation. Totally. And so, I mean, in 90 days, were you actually, I mean, I can't imagine you were able to like fully no. regulate that in not 90 days, but no, like. Not at all. Like it, it, I actually, I don't really remember the first couple of years, really. It's, it seems like all a blur. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a while. I didn't feel great for a long time. Um, so it took me a real long time to kind of get my feet under me. Even though I was doing things, and then I was a massage therapist at the time, so I had work and I was working on people. Um, I was acting. I was in New York City. I had an active social life with people who were also sober. Um, yeah, the, I didn't have the coping skills. That's a great. That's a great. And it's interesting now, you know, twenty two years later, when I you know I'll coach, you know, hedge fund owners, you know, high performers who are very, very, very successful. And they have the same exact challenge. As they become successful, this idea around health span and lifespan becomes very apparent, especially when you get to like 50 and you, you realize, wow, like, do I have 30 years left or 35 or 40 or 10? I don't know. And so it's like, what do I need to do to start living? Um, you know, like Peter Atia talks about the last decade. How do you want to live your last decade? Mm. What are you doing today that allows you to live that way in your last decade? You never know when you're in your last decade. But I think a lot of people who start to achieve financial freedom, pure freedom, then they're like, wow, now I need to live a long time. And they start to realize that alcohol is that kind of last thing that robs them. And it's very hard because it's socially ingrained. It's part of the social circle if they spend yeah. 30 years doing it and it's like it's, I don't, it's 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 systemically kind of like a part of our culture like it just is and it's it, an identity and, it, and yeah. it's and i and i actually think it's because the opposite of dealing with the dysregulated nervous system of like the work and the time and the patience and the discomfort that one must sit in in order to become like grounded or yeah. more or being that like more of that regulated state there's just either not training it takes too long yeah or there's not enough systemic support to encourage that and so it just becomes really difficult 
and 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 it's and it's tough unless you have support like you did. I, I'm actually curious. Uh, I love this. How do you want to live the last decade of your life? Like, I'm curious. What is the answer to that question for you? Well, it's shifting and changing because now that I'm I'm 48 and I'm starting to think about yeah, what is the last decade of my life? Like, how how long am I planning to live? Right. And I never. I, it's it's something that I've been really contemplating. It's like okay, if I live to a hundred, uh, do I want my 90s to be functional right mm -hmm. and and sure I, I may plan to live to 100 and die earlier that's total possibility but how am i orienting and how am i living so that if i do that i'm living um dynamically i guess you would say because there's a lot of things that for me i i you know it's it, i want to do when i'm older um but i also i have like a belief system where i'm going to try and do all those things now I'm not going to wait to do the things that I want to do. Um, but yeah, that would be like, you know, 52 years from now. It's a long time. It's a very long it's time. The second half of your life. The second half of my life, you know, even if I lived to 85, right? It's, it's another 30 something years, um, 37 years, but it, it's, you know, then that's 27 years away in my last decade. So it's not that far off. Like when I think about it, I've been sober 22 years and you know, those, those years go by very quickly. So cool is like I just love I'm appreciating when you're super fucking grounded, <laughs> like and so that to me, and and you're also somebody that I respect deeply when it comes to doing this type of work and supporting people and doing this type mm -hmm. of work. How much do you bring in this sort of like relationship to death into your own practice and even the practice of those that you may support? Um, because it, it feels like that's even that question, how do I want to live the last decade of my life is yeah. inherently yeah. bringing in death to the conversation. It's a, it's an interesting frame too, because the last decade, I'm assuming, you know, 30 years, right? And then there's the frame of, um, you know, I walk out of here and it's over, right? So there's a, yeah. there's um, when we, I ran the first two Everyman retreats with uh, Dan Doty, which was really epic and powerful and transformative and sparked a whole men's movement. Um, one of the things that we did in that those first two things was taking people on a journey from conception, like in like a trance state, right? And like in a, in a meditative state, conception all the way through to like birth and walking and, um, you know, toddler age and adolescence and teenage years and the kind of like really walking people through their whole entire journey, stepping into present time and then feeling into the future of like all the things that you plan on doing, want to do, look forward to doing, getting them really kind of connected to the possibilities and then boom, you know, they have a heart attack and die. Mm. And, you know, we're taking them on this journey and then it's over and you don't get to say anything that's it it stops pause and what do you regret not doing uh and what are you really grateful for um and and kind of feeling into like what's the incomplete what's the thing that um you're having to grapple with now that you don't get to do it so it brings people really into a present moment and for most of us you know you and i earlier were talking about the deeper calling like what most deeply wants to come through. And I, I find that in all of us, there are these components of something that wants to come through. We're not quite sure what it is, 
It's just like a feeling of there's something else or something different that I want to experience in multiple dimensions. Could be in a relationship, in business, with your health, could be community oriented. It could be as a father. There's just something that wants to come through, but you're not quite sure what it is. Um, I find that that practice kind of brought forward like, wow, like I've been sitting on this thing for so long. Yeah. And I keep kicking the can down the road and I'm not actually doing anything about it. And so in that, we would we would circle people up and have them really talk about, wow, like what's the emotion that comes up? How do you feel about that? And And what does it begin to spark in terms of more fire? Like how do you light fire under the thing that you're not dead and you're here now and actually tomorrow you will be alive, hopefully, right? What What changes in terms of what you begin to take actions on because all all ideas need the physical body to begin to move in that direction so what's the step what's the thing that you're going to step into at, that's connected to this deeper thing that you've been sitting on it's really been calling to you and you have all these excuses why you can't do it because of this because of that and we have a lot of excuses and a lot of them are you know legit excuses what do you think is the source of a calling Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, when I drop into like my deepest calling, like let's say, for example, like if I start to feel into the dimension of being a father and actually this is something really cool too, which is I've been exploring is when you feel separate and disconnected from something, um, how do you then create connection and contact with that thing, whatever it is. It could be a person, a situation, a business, a website you're building, a book you're writing. It doesn't matter what it is. How does one begin to create closeness and connection and engagement? And and I and I always try to find the the simplest, easiest way to do that. Mm-hmm. And so in my contemplative practice that you got the chance to experience with me a couple weeks ago, what I've been doing is in that stillness, in that space, I literally imagine that there's this space that opens up inside of me and then I bring that thing in and I let it sit inside my body. And so, so like, let's say for example, if my son and being a father, um, if I feel disconnected from him or separate in any way, shape or form, I allow him in and I allow him to like to sit inside of me. And then I just kind of listen for like, what is most meaningful and important to me as a father? And I just kind of tune in to like, there's a, something that opens and resonates. There's like a feeling or a sensation, a nonverbal sense of like, ah, like, you know, creating a space for him to feel grounded and a sense of identity and the capability of meeting life's hardships creatively and powerfully. Like that's really important and meaningful to me. So that becomes a calling, you know, that sense of like, meaning and per meaning it's meaningful to me and i feel like a like as i begin to connect with it it lights me up so that's where i begin to layer that as a calling mm. and then as i begin to take steps towards that and supporting him in that and being a father like that that starts to what's interesting is that the narrative is like ah oh, like i'm on mission like i'm living in alignment with what's most important and meaningful and when you do that in all dimensions of life it starts to create like a deeper sense of self where i feel like i'm moving in the direction because i'm not perfect 
<laughs> we we had we had we were in Hawaii two weeks ago, and and uh, I got my son a phone for the first time. He's doing, mm-hmm. and there were some things that he posted on YouTube that were really not good, and I got really angry when the restaurant I had a meltdown because it was it was really inappropriate, but he had no idea because he heard a comedian say it, and so he just like parroted what he heard on YouTube. And I thought I had blocked all those things on his phone for him posting, and he, I didn't. I, and uh, and I had like a meltdown, and he just started crying. You know, he was just like, and he was lying, and he was making up excuses because I was coming down on him. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and and I realized like I was doing what my dad did to me when I was a kid. You know? Yeah. And so, you know, I had to, you know, once I kind of cooled off, I had to then the next day come back and have a conversation about it, own it, and you know, really reconcile like, wow, like, yeah, like I totally got triggered. And, um, and so, so part of like a calling and moving in a direction of the calling doesn't mean that every behavior is going to be in alignment with that. Um, I don't expect myself to be perfect. Um, but when I get knocked off, I know what the North star is that kind of brings me back in a direction. What's fascinating is like, I'm finding like even me, like with my work now, like I feel like I'm truly living my calling. Like I'm stepping into what I'm here to do and how I'm here to do it. And so like, underneath the calling, what is meaningful, right? Because I always find calling really is connected to what's meaningful. So what's meaningful in your work? Uh, it's just helping people wake up to the fullness of themselves. Yeah. Like it's like reminding people that they are their own greatest healers. Right. Like to me, there's nothing that inspires me more right, than watching somebody truly like access that power right like, well because you're doing that within yourself as well right right so it's it's a deep reflection of how, what you're living yeah and so it's it's an embodied thing that you're living well, what's crazy is that, like i find that the more i step into this role as a leader in this it triggers me left and right all my triggers show up mm-hmm. it's like there's this beautiful like pursuit of this we call it a calling whatever you want but when you're living in that 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 alignment what ends up kind of coming through is like anything that's not in alignment sure it's like anything that's not in alignment ends up at the surface like if you want to be a great father like anything that's getting in the way of you being a great father is going to present itself sure as an opportunity to integrate and i find the same way with like work or like it's like when i have something to lose or when there's like when things are on the it's like it's this there's a brilliant sort of like shaping mechanism of life, which I've, which is how I kind of always viewed calling or purpose. Like when we're living in alignment, we're, we're living our unique design, but that design is actually like kind of ironing out and gristling us into yeah. the versions of ourselves that we're meant to be. Yeah. Well, that, that uh, assumption that if I'm living my calling, everything's going to be smooth. It's doesn't usually work that way. No, it's actually, it turns up the dial even more. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's true. It's like as you start to live in alignment with that calling, yeah, all of the behaviors, the beliefs, the traumas that um, have been kind of getting in the way come to the surface. And so I had an old teacher that used to really help me frame when I get triggered to feel a sense of joy because Mm -hmm. I've just brought something that lives in the shadows that controls that I have no awareness of to the surface. And then it's very hard to work something that you don't have that's not up. So when it's triggered and it's up, now I'm aware of it. Then I can begin to metabolize it, yes. 
I can begin to work on, you know, whatever reframing is needed. Um, I find like the, a great tool that I think allows me to stay grounded is that when I do get triggered is being able to relax my body when I'm in the trigger. So there's a, there's like a system that I create. It's boss mode, dude. Well, there's, a <laughs> there's this system, like this uh, process that I created called the, the core. And um, so it's like a somatic approach to integrating and metabolizing inner experience. Re really, it could be used for anything. And it's a really simple process that has depth and breadth and width that you, and, and a lot of different dimensions it can be applied. But one of the, you know, when I look at the systematic approach to things, right? Because you can talk about these and then, shit, well, how do I actually do it? And then how do I be it, right? Because you want the doing to be an identity. It's like, this is who I am. You know, so when something comes up, I try to allow, I, I allow myself to experience what it is without trying to understand it or change it. And actually Rick Rubin really talks about this too. He says when he gets like it, when something comes in that's new, he spends some time just experiencing it in its raw form yeah. without trying to label it, judge it, teach it, understand it, uh, label in any way. He just, wow, what is this? Let me just make contact with that thing. I think that's the first step. Yeah. Um, and then what I've noticed is when I get triggered, um, I make contact with what is, what's the, what's the experience of the trigger. So it's the first C is, is contact and just allowing it to be its full self expression. And then there's the orienting, which is, and I think, um, George Spencer talks about this in one of his meditations and it's so cool. Like I love it when I, I discover things and then I hear other people teaching them because yeah. it, because it really, at the end of the day, we're all it, touching the same truth. Totally. Man, no one really owns this stuff. It's just, I just tapped into the field. There it is. And so totally, totally. Yeah. And so <laughs> I find that, um, when there is a trigger, everything gets really tight and, and we get, we lose space inside. So I do the opposite. So I, I feel into the trigger and then I, I feel into all the space around me, above me, below me. Mm, wow. So you literally feel your body in space. So you feel all the space around. And then that's the orienting. And then the R is a repatterning. So as I'm with the trigger, my pattern, instead of like not breathing, tense, reactive, tight in my body, I relax everything and I have a, I, I recover regulated breath. I love that. So you actually like part of your processing is doing the opposite of what the trigger is. So you actually take some time to, to name the, like, so once you're aware of it, it's like, okay, like how can I, I don't even name it. I just be with it, whatever the experience is. Cause a lot of times name then gets into head. Got it. And I don't want the trigger to start being conceptualized and become, cause when people talk about a trigger, if you, you've probably seen this, people talk about a problem, the problem never changes. It's because they're just talking about it conceptually. They're not actually working it through, right? It's just a concept that we've frozen a process. So part of it is, can I just be with the thing? I spend my whole life um, reframing and working and, you know, trying to kind of work the experience. Now I'm just with it. I think it's a level of mastery, like, and it's like, you know, cause I do think that at one point in my journey, when I got started, like the processing was super valuable. 
Oh, huge. Like, yeah, I know, because yeah. learning the awareness and like training your nervous system to like understand what's actually happening and where it's coming from sure. has such a value. Sure. And then at some point you do get to that place where you're like, okay, like I know where this is going. That's not where I need to go right now. Well, the deeper frame. So like when I think about beliefs that I hold as my identity is, uh, it must make sense is mm -hmm. my inner dialogue. So and even something that must make sense is a function of the mind. Totally. If it needs to be understood, it's up here. Well, what happens is, is what spins us out into victim, um, hopelessness and helplessness is I don't know why. So, so when something is happening, you'll notice people like, I don't know why I, I just have this anxiety. I, I can't seem to, I don't know why. And then, and then the, I don't know why on the third or fourth time tends to kick up emotion and sadness and anxiety and hopelessness and helplessness and fear. And so the, it must make sense takes care of the mind part of relaxing and surrendering. Oh, it must make sense why this trigger is up. So if it must make sense, it's connected to something and it's meaningful. So everything is meaningful, right? So, so if I'm experiencing something, it must make sense. So, huh, so let me just be with it. It must make sense. I don't need to figure it out because it, it must make sense. It must make sense. Such that's a great, great. Love that. Yeah. That's super, super helpful. helpful. Super. So I, it must make sense, huh? Let me, let me just be with this. And look, and for things that are really triggering and trauma connected, this is very difficult to do. You know, when someone has, you know, something that's really, really triggering, dysregulated, sexual abuse, trauma, something, a big T, this could be really hard to do. Yeah. This is really for, you know, I just got an email and I'm triggered. Something's up and I feel fear. Well, it's a tool. And even if it is a, if you're not sure if it's a small T or big T trigger trauma that's showing up, it's still a tool that you can yeah. use. And I've used it for big T's. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's yeah. like, it feels, this feels actually like just a great way to be with what is. Yeah. Yeah. That isn't a mental process. This is a, a very body-based yeah. listening yeah. process to be present inside of the experience. Yeah. Cause I, I actually use this, um, and let me go through the model and I can share where I use this on a suicidal ideation that I had. That was pretty, pretty. I would love that. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so you got, you make contact, you orient, so you create space around. So you're feeling whatever is there and you're just feeling into all the space. The space becomes a resource mm. and then you can breathe because space, you know, Einstein said space and time is one entity, right? So if you have space, you have time. So I have nice. time all the time in the world if I have space and then the repatterning is and this is something that there's still pieces where I get triggered and then my pattern is speeding up and getting irritated and angry so part of it is as I'm feeling it can I relax every muscle in my body and re re reclaim my regulated breath right and then the E is just to explore is really just to listen for what's here what's there to learn there's a whole method that I teach in terms of how to begin to engage, not in a heady way, but in a really slowed down, curious, open way. So when I had this, um, about a year ago, out of the blue, I had this really, you ever have that feeling where you're on like a, a balcony and then you step back because you're afraid that you might jump off. Like there's a part of you that's in you that you might jump off. I feel that way sometimes when I'm driving. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right? Sometimes I just feel like I'm going to be like, Whoop! Yeah, totally. We all have yeah. this weird, yeah. like, dark thought of something. Like, oh my God, what if I can't control this thing in totally. the jumps in front of a train? It's so, it's, 
beautiful to bring up. Yeah. yeah. And, and I have some theories about what that is, but I, I've realized I've had many of those in different contexts. Like I had one where when my wife and I got together, I, th- I think I might've shared this another time, but you know, we were cooking dinner and there was a knife in my hand and she was staying next to me. I'm like, Oh my God, what if like, I just stabbed her and I don't want to, st- I don't want to kill her. Like, what if like, there's a, something in me that would do that? And I would freak out. Like I, like I literally freaked out. And then I was like, I got to the point where I was like hiding knives and wouldn't cook and wouldn't like hold a knife next to her. And I remember like just melting down. This was like early in our relationship. And I, I was like, I got to tell her like, there's something wrong with me. Like maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm psychotic. Maybe there's this like deep inner demon in me that I can't control. And, um, and I remember telling her thinking that she was going to break up with me or it's going to be this big fight or, you know, she was going to think I was a madman. And I remember telling her, you know, I, I, there's this weird impulse. I'm afraid that I'm going to like stab you and I don't want to do that. And, and it's freaking me out. I'm starting to cry. And she just like, looks at me. She's like, that's so hot. <laughs> and then we had this like great sex oh, man. and I never had it again. You know, what's really, <laughs> it's really fascinating. Like I, I remembered one of the deepest, I have a, not, not a similar story, but like, and I can't share the details of it because the person I shared it with is probably wouldn't, if it's not, yeah. it's, not, it's not the space to do that. But I had a very similar experience with my former partner where like I was so terrified to share something about myself that was yeah. like literally I thought was like the worst thing in the world. Sure. The absolute worst thing in the world. And I had all these stories and everything and it was just all there. And then the second it came out, I was crying and like bawling and everything was flying out and all she wanted to do was love me more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing that like we, these things that we hold as bad, wrong, like negative, like, and when we can like really connect to the authenticity and the vulnerability in that, like, it's such a profound, uh, it creates such a profound vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Like even I'm feeling the vulnerability, even in you sharing that here, Yeah, like, it's like, there's so much. Um, like, thank you one, just for even opening up like that. Cause it's, I think that's what's missing in the world right now. Like we're missing this permission to be vulnerable and this permission to be messy. Well, it's like, Hey, I'm having these thoughts and I don't really fucking know what they mean, but like they're here, they're present. I'm scared. Like, please don't hate me. Please don't throw me out of the house. Yeah, please don't yeah. break up with me. Yeah. Like, whoa, like that right there. And like, if we all knew how to just hold space for that. Holy shit, how much of our fucking mental health problems would be gone? Well, this is the thing like that I, I'm so grateful early on. Like the first four years of getting sober, I went through AA. Actually, five years. And then I went to Vipassana. And I had this like awakening and I realized the root of my suffering. And I never went back to AA, but I stayed sober. But in AA, they say your secrets make you sick. And that was really stuck in my nervous system as an identity. Uh, that's an identity for me. It's like my secrets will keep me sick. And so I don't hold secrets. And so part of that is, and again, there's the right context for the right secrets, right? So secrets make you, you know, holding secrets make you sick doesn't mean to go on social media and share your secrets, right? It means that you find the right context for the right secret to share, right? And so you and I, you know, we do therapy work or I have men's groups that you know, no aspects of me that no one else knows. My wife, you know, knows aspects of me. Um, so I think that underlying value and belief system was what allowed me to share it. 
I think there was a part of me at one point that was really confused around like what's what's meant to be shared and what's meant to be worked on with myself in a therapy setting. Yeah, yeah. And like that was a it was a really messy journey of me figuring that out. Like there were times where like there were things I would take to Gina, my former lover, and like it was not meant to be taken to her. It was actually meant to be worked through on my own. Yeah. And it did create rifts in our relationship and it took repair and us having to come together and work things through. And if I just would have been more uh, aware, maybe, maybe a little more, a little less like reactive. Like I think I had this, this kind of notion that like it was so uncomfortable to feel that I just wanted to like, and I didn't have the awareness to like hold it and work with it and be with it. And it was so messy, man. Like I, well, you have the awareness now through that experience. Yeah. So so there's the messiness is part of how we get clean in a way. Beautifully Uh, said. Because I've seen people who hold the belief that, um, you know, I'm just, I just share my truth wherever I just, that's who I am. If I, if I feel it, it's my truth. I say it. And I think context matters. I think it matters a lot. I don't think, uh, I, I don't believe in the speak your truth movement. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I yeah. really feel like it's irresponsible to speak your truth unless there's purpose. There's, there's a frame, there's context. Totally. My, you know, my, my, and my wife, have a great, my wife's a great partner in the sense that there are things where I'm like, Hey, I need to process this. I have something I'm processing and like, and she's like, I'd work it, you know? And there's certain things that I'll work with her and some things I don't that I need to work on my own or I need to work with like another. How do you know? How do you know? I guess like for myself, anyone listening, like to practice the discernment between like, cause I think there are times where in my last relationships where like I'd feel guilty if I was holding something back cause we were so close mm-hmm. and I wanted her to be involved in like, I always, there was a story in this frame that I had that if I'm not sharing myself with this person, that I'm hiding something mm-hmm. and it, and so, and, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts around like, how do you practice discernment with like knowing when to share? Like, how do you know who to involve in the process? Like, where does the sophistication around like this level of awareness? Like, I'm I'm really actually would love to hear your your thoughts. It's a great question. I think um, doing it unsophisticated and messy is kind of how you learn how to get sophisticated. Well, as somebody right? who's done yeah. this I've enough done now, a messy bunch, yeah. And sure. so, like, if you could give your 30 year old self some advice on how to save on like if, if he hired you as a mentor or a coach and this is what he came to you for like how would you instruct him to develop the skill himself well i think it goes back to that deeper knowing of yourself um and having a really rooted grounded practice where you can do the work on your own because like you know if if i was to if we were to really audit people's process and how they metabolize life most people don't have a space where that's the intention. Mm. We have intention for everything else. You know, uh, like we have a room for everything else, for showering, eating, sleeping, working, um, TV. But none of us have like a metabolizing room. Yeah. A room to really like drop in and begin to work through things. You know, so like our, we have a tea room uh, for our tea practice, my wife and I, and that's my metabolizing room. It's, it's in the emptiness and it's like the Tao, right? It's like, as I empty my bowl, uh, I can then be filled with like mm-hmm. a deeper wisdom, not just what I already know. And the tea practice always reminds me of like, if my bowl is full, I can't put new tea in there. So that there's a practice of emptying and really stepping out of the mind 
And then once I step out of the mind and I empty myself, there is a clarity and a wisdom that begins to come through. And so um, I think developing a space where you can slow down and begin the art of contemplation. Um, actually, my wife and I are running a training at the Star House here next month called the Art of Contemplation, but it's it's Chadao, so it's the way of tea, using tea as a as a as a container for contemplation, mm. deep contemplation. Those are my favorite things I've done in a while, by the way. Just sitting in tea with you yeah, for a few hours great. and just like sounds weird because think, oh, I'm going to sit and have. Well, tea it's so still. Like, there, there's a, there's a stillness to the ceremony that I think is super valuable. Like it's yeah. it's a lot of stillness. You don't feel the activation in the same way that you would other plants or psychoactives like yeah. it's just the a plant comes to your world right so plant medicine typically you go to the plant kingdom mm -hmm. and tea comes into your world so it works within your realm um so so you were asking me about mentoring right like how i would mentor someone yeah, yeah i think having a space to begin to metabolize experience is one um i've you know 17 years of doing men's work and watching other men process is really helpful so having good models for how to do it and how not to do it is really important. Just being, uh, you know, if your secrets keep you sick, if you're hiding it, it tends to fester and become a lot more distorted. It's almost like I've actually found, even this is something we realize in our liberate communities, like one of the reasons why a lot of the community work that we do is all about being seen is because we found that shame, when you give it a space to breathe, it goes away. It goes away. So whatever your whatever your deepest shame is, your deepest darkest secret, when you just allow it the space to exist without judgment, normally the charge goes away, and then your own relationship to it can be redefined and shifted yeah. and used in a more positive and constructive manner. There's a it's amazing to watch you know running some healing journeys with men and watching how their father beat them as a kid. And they believe that they weren't strong enough to stand up to their dad. And they have all this shame that they were weak. Mm. And they don't want me to see that they were weak and couldn't beat back their father. Like, this is what they hold as a belief. And I remember this one guy was, you know, just in a casual conversation, was talking about his legs going numb in the middle of the night or spazzing. And, and he was telling me the story. Yeah, just like, you know, we're just talking about like supplements and like, you know, basic biohacking stuff. And, and he was telling me the story, but, and he was like, yeah, I'll wake up in the middle of the night. And then he started pounding his legs, hitting his legs. He's like, I, I thought, I don't know why they're feeling this way. And he started hitting them and, and I could literally see it. I could see, you know, this is like doing this work. I could see the, the abuse in his body mm. and, um, and I had to like make a decision in that moment, like to go there and I was like like who hit you and he just fought oh bro. we did like an hour journey of like oh man dropping into like this shame around his father beating him and he wasn't strong enough and he looked at me he's like you don't think less of me because I couldn't defend myself oh, bro, I mean the shame was like it's heartbreaking oh. and and I had some guys there with me that do the work you know, we just put him in the center of all four of us and we had him one by one, eye to eye, just stand and just be with another man. And, and each of those men loved him so deeply, like, and just, and he's like, you don't think less of me. And they're just looking at him like, like, we honor you. Are you kidding me? Like, and we had to almost like reprogram his nervous system and, 
and show him that by showing that vulnerability and sharing his pain in that way, that the men actually felt more safe with him because they felt him. Yeah. They didn't feel safe with him before. And now they're like, dude, I feel so fucking safe with you. And, and I think there's a lot of men that are carrying these belief systems that are so not true, but they're hidden. So they're never brought to the surface to be recontextualized yeah. or to be challenged or to be reframed or for that, you know, belief to be right-sized. Um, so you're right. The shame piece keeps us hiding and we all have hidden shame. All of us. Like I'm sure there's still stuff that I'm like, Ooh, yeah. Wow. Where, where's that one? Like there's some shame. <laughs> Where'd that come from? It's just hidden in the shadows, especially as you get older. Um, there's a lot of pieces in there and now I have the tools to work it and the people to work it with. And, um, you know, going back to the core, you know, last year I had this weird impulse to pull my gun out and blow my brains out. It was like a, it was like an instant, just a strange impulse of like, I would see myself pull my gun out of the holster and blow my brains out. And then I would panic because it was like, I'm not suicidal. I'm a fucking great life. I feel fantastic in my skin. I have a wonderful family, great relationship. I look forward to living. So this impulse totally rocked me because I was like, what, what is that? You know, so it's like that on the edge of the balcony, but on steroids. And I remember like freezing and I was like, okay, that was fucking weird because it was one of those things I could never come back from. Right. It's like, oh my, that's a really scared me. And I had it a few times. And finally I called a buddy of mine, a special forces guy that actually, um, I had facilitated in a men's group years ago who I knew was suicidal and actually through the men's work, you know, found his purpose, his passion. Yeah. And, and I called him and I was like, Hey man, do you have a second? He's to drive. He's like, yeah, I got my kid in the car. I'm going to, <laughs> you know, he's like, I go to the store. My wife wants me to get some eggs. And I'm like, you got a second? I was like, yeah, what's up? He goes, I was like, dude, I just had this weird impulse to blow my brains. He goes, hang on one second, honey, here's my phone. You know, he's like, <laughs> All right, wait, what's going on? And we just like had this whole jam on, you know? I was like, dude, tell me about your suicidal impulse. He goes, well, for me, you know, I stick a gun in my mouth and then I got to talk myself out of blowing my brains out because I got kids. I was like, dude, for me, it was like the opposite. I don't want to kill myself. He's like, well, walk me through it. So we kind of like talked through it. Um, and it was really great because again, I have the belief that your secrets keep you sick. And I have you know, these relationships where, you know, when you, when you are in relation where someone says something deeply vulnerable, it gives permission for that relationship, for those things to be shared. Like, that's why it's really important to be vulnerable in a relationship. Cause if it's the right person, yeah. then they feel permission to have, that's the depth of the container. Yeah. Like, and there was one other person that you and I both know that I share that with, um, because we have that depth, that container that I just reached out to and said, Hey, you got a second? Hey, what's up? You know, going to yoga. <laughs> it's like, and, like, and we just had a normal conversation. It wasn't like, oh my God, you're, you know, it was just a normal conversation. All right, like, let's work it through. Like, and um, it was just one of those, it was a, it was a really interesting thing because I had to work the core process around it. So the core was just being with the sensation, being with the sensation and give it space and relax when it's in my body. And when you allowed it to feel, did any insights flow through or was it more so, like it just the sensation went or the, the impulse went away? So this is where, you know, when you asked me like, what was the support around me that really helped me get sober? I'm in a constellation, family constellation certification. Mm. 
And so I've been in this con on a meta level, on this bigger conversation, taking a look at generational trauma mm. and taking a look at how like our parents, grandparents, great grandparents, how their experiences, their trauma gets passed down through the genetics. Yeah. But also just through family dynamics and patterns and family communication. Wow. So this was this was generational. So but I didn't I, I hadn't had that frame. And it wasn't until about several months after those episodes kind of started to cool down. I would get them periodically, but I had kind of I kind of with the core process was able to kind of be with it. Yeah, yeah. Without spacious so to it. Dysregulating, but just being like, I still not quite sure what this is. Um I did some ketamine therapy around it. Nothing really touched it. And then um, I started to do some work around my mother's father who was on the beaches of Anzio in World War II um, and was a heavy machine gunner. So when they stormed the beaches, they dug into trenches fighting the Germans and a mortar hit his where they were dug in and everybody was killed except my grandfather. And his leg was badly wounded. He you know, kind of blew part of his leg was was deeply mangled and he laid in the ditch for three three days and his leg got gangrene and what was really interesting is when i constellated it and i started to take a look at you know day one day two you know here he is wounded bleeding out the germans are over the over the you know it was one of the bloodiest kind of it was before d-day it was one of the bloodiest battles in world war ii in italy um, day two, legs blown, no ammunition, everybody's dead, no one's coming to get him. There's dead people everywhere. That impulse to like take his life because he didn't want to just bleed out, die, or get caught by the Germans and get tortured. And I started to feel into this impulse that he had to blow his brains out, but he couldn't do it. Like he couldn't, he couldn't take his own life. And uh, eventually they rescued him and then he was on the boat, the the um, Red Cross boat, but then the Germans bombed the Red Cross boat. So, you know, he was like for weeks in and out of this trauma loop of waking up and going to sleep, waking wow. up and going to sleep. And it was interesting was that, you know, till he was 90, he smoked, um, you know, unfiltered cigarettes, sat in a wheelchair and watched black and white World War, World War II movies for, you know, what was it? Probably 70 years. You know, he was stuck in this trauma loop of like, living in that trauma still until he passed, you know, he was watching World War II movies. And so when I was doing the constellation work, I realized that somehow, somewhere that impulse kind of got activated in my system. That's fucking amazing it, it was, that you were able to. So like when you had the awareness of it, like, did it just like click? It just it just made so much sense. Yeah, so like it's like it's like the, the like you you had the realization, the data showed up in the family constellation, and then it was like it was like oh, dude, the aha, and of then course. so here's the thing, oh, man, that is this is fucking this is awesome. The root of it must make sense, right? Because when it made sense, it was like oh, now I can hold this because I was trying to process a trauma that wasn't my own, but mm -hmm. maybe somehow it got linked into something that I had experienced, but it just gave it context. Wow, that is, thank you so much for taking us down that path because that brings so much more trust to the body. Yeah. You know, like, it's like we, I think there's this perpetual war that we have against our feelings, our body, our emotions, like what we're sense, like 
I remember there was a period in my life where like performance anxiety was a serious thing. And like anytime, like I wouldn't be able to get hard when I'm trying to have sex, like I would beat myself up oh, yeah. and I would go into this thing for guys, and yeah. I'd go into this like deep, 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 dark, depressive, anxious, like just state Yeah. instead of actually like the opposite now, which I feel like I have a much healthier relationship to my penis and I'm like way more like listening. Like, all right, like, what are you trying to tell me? Your cock has wisdom. It's super wisdom. It's super fucking smart, man. It's dick smarts. Dick smarts are a thing. Yeah. And like, but I think that like that, I just really appreciate you sharing to the depths that you're sharing because like yours feels like it was so, I mean, it it had life ending consequences. Oh, big time. And And the fear is that there are people who are experiencing generational trauma that then do take their lives. Yeah. And- you know, it was something that was inherited in some way, shape, or form. That is like devastating. You know, when I when I when I see that, and I've had a lot of people who have taken their lives, they you are know, friends of mine. Wow. And so, yeah, it was. Um, there was another one too that I for thirty years worked through a trauma that turned out wasn't mine, or it was informed by my father's trauma. So, how do you have the patience? To stick with it, like, because I think that's something I, you know, I feel like you and I, we just have, this is like a life passion. Yeah. But for somebody who doesn't have this life passion, but they're having these suicidal thoughts, like, they don't have 30 years to go no, I know. find the yeah. root trauma. So, like, how would you speak to somebody who's in those moments, like, to help them either reframe, repattern? Is it just that, hey, it must make sense. Like this isn't you. Is it? Is is that? Is it just like a self love message that really lands? Or like, well, the challenge with suicide is that I'm mean, again. I don't know, right? And it's so big, and there's so many roots and components to it. Um, and to me, it's like alcohol. It's cunning, baffling, and powerful. Yeah, just that impulse to do that is. There's so many different, I, I used to get very angry when a friend would commit suicide. I get, I get rageful. Like, how could you do that? Until I had those experiences of impulse of like, oh, that's how you could do that. Like, now I understand. Like, because, you know, and again, you don't know the mind of someone who does take their own life, like what they're struggling with. But the impulse, look, and I, I was in a space in my life where everything was great. What if my life was not great? Yeah. You know, like if I didn't have the environment that I'm in now, I don't know if I would actually made it. Like if, you know, if I was 48 and I was like just struggling and miserable and drinking and one day was drunk where, you know, my impulse control was lower, that, that might've been something that could have happened. You know, that's the thing too, like with alcohol for me, it, it, my values and my principles would go away. So I would, I would find myself yeah. doing things that when I was sober, I would never do. And then I would wake up with total shame. Like, how could I have done that? And put myself in that risky situation, whatever it was. And so alcohol tended to create, you know, I would lose impulse control. Yeah. And so that mixture of alcohol and firearms is a very bad mixture for people who are going through those issues. And that's why, like, you know, I called my buddy and I was like, you know, maybe you just need to come and take all my firearms away. Like, because... I don't even want to be around them. So I just locked them away. Like I didn't even have access to them because I was afraid that it, again, it's one second. 
that I don't have that impulse control. One thing I'm just so grateful, and I just want to thank you again for bringing awareness to this conversation. This is not where I thought we were going to go yeah. today. <laughs> well, I think the suicide conversation is such a, it's so misunderstood. Yeah, and I'm not totally. saying that I understand it. Like, well, it, what's, what's all. beautiful, and I'm not saying that there will ever be a universal understanding of the topic because like you said, there's so many root causes that are contributing to one another. But what's so beneficial for me as somebody who, if anybody in my life was suicidal, like, you know, for me, it's like, I I just want to be able to serve and be there for them in whatever ways I can. And for me to hear another perspective from somebody that I deeply admire, respect, and somebody who's actually worked through the root and has gotten to the other side, mm. and to know that it was that was the root, yeah, gives me such a frame to love people and to like hold space for this conversation that yeah. I just could not have had. So I really, John, I gotta thank you, man. Like, I appreciate you, um, you really bringing uh, one your authenticity and your vulnerability into the conversation, and for uh, exampling what it looks like to do the work. And to do it in at that level for yourself, like, I mean, to hold that level of space for yourself is fucking inspiring. And so, like, I just really, like, I'm, I'm, I'm super inspired. I'm super grateful. And um, I totally see you, dude. Like, you're such a boss. And I can, like, I, I just, I've, I've been looking for, I told you this before, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. We've been trying to get, like, a time since the day we met, yeah, we were at Ben's house and just sat next to each other at dinner. And I just like, like we just went so deep. And I think we've been trying to get this to happen since uh, for a while now. And uh, and now we're doing it in person in yeah. Boulder. So that, that was, I think that was Ben Greenfield's house where he was doing cold plunges three times a day. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, no, I, I, I'm, I'm a guy who doesn't do cold. That's who I am. Right. And, and that was an identity that I held oh. until that trip. Really? Yeah, because I, I do all this identity work and I realize like I have an identity that I don't do cold. And I was like, interesting. Like how I made a behavior an identity. And so I went home and I bought a cold plunge and it took me about a year to, and I was like an experiment. Can I shift my identity to someone who thrives in the cold? And and little by little, like, you know, the first couple of months I would stick my finger in, then I would close it. I'd stick my feet in, I'd get out. Like I did a lot of negotiating. Um, and you know, now I can sit in there for three minutes every day, but I spent 47 years of my life. Just a guy doesn't do cold. I don't like the cold. <laughs> now you do. Now you live in a cold place. In a cold place in New York too. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah totally. Well, John, I, I love you, man. I, I'm like I said, I'm no, just, I appreciate you inviting me on and, and hopefully this was helpful. And yeah, you know, the, the sharing the suicidal stuff is, you know, there's a, part of it where it's like, I don't want people to know that, you know? And then there's another part where it's the same thing with like drinking and alcohol. It's like, there are people who are in the shadows of that stuff and they, they've never really, they've never seen anybody model just talking naturally about it, you know? And there, there are a lot of people who now talk naturally about it, which is really beautiful. Like when I got sober, people were not talking about it. There wasn't really a thing. Well, actually YouTube wasn't really a thing either 22 years ago, but, um, it's really beautiful to watch people normalize struggles, which I think is part of what you're trying to do is bring these struggles in a conversation that's really grounded and really open and accepting and non-judgmental 
so that people can feel a sense of like, oh, wow, the thing that I've been holding such criticism and shame around, I don't have to, you know, so you know, really modeling that you know, for, for your listeners. Thanks, man. I mean, liberating ourselves from shame is, I think the, you know, it's, it's, shame is what I, I've been just realizing, like shame is something that's dissolved in, in this container of yeah, conversation with sure. others where it's just open and vulnerable and I think we have systemic shame that's keeping us trapped in patterns that are way outdated and not serving where we're headed and the type of union and love and, and connection that we're all craving. And so even if I think about like a, just a personal, like internal drive to just like dissolve shame within myself and it starts with having conversations like these. And so it, like I said, man, I, I, I love you. Yeah. Um, I, really, I always want to add one piece here on the shame thing because I yeah. think there's, you know, the difference between a toxin and medicine is dosage and frequency. Mm. And there is a bit of shame that is generative. So there there are aspects when I feel some shame, but it's a generative shame in the sense of like, wow, I really said I was going to live with an open heart with my wife and I totally just shut down. Beautiful. I appreciate you bringing that. Yeah. yeah. And then feeling the shame of that and saying, hey, babe, like, I've been closing my heart and I want to open. So the, the shame that moves you closer because it's highlighting a disconnect to like what you said you were going to do. Your integrity. Yeah. So, so when, there's when, a generative shame. That's piece. beautiful. Thank you for bringing that up because I think that, and that actually brings it back to like, there's nothing in us that is not worth loving. Even our shame has a purpose. Yeah. It's just an unconscious purpose and it requires training sure to like re sort of pattern our relationship to shame and it sounds like you've uh created a very healthy really and i would even say if i had to give myself credit like i think that is my relationship to my shame now or when it does show up it's more of a, a, a guide and a teacher for where i'm living out of integrity or living out of alignment yeah. and it's it is always uh it always inspired because i don't really like feeling shame so it always inspires a corrective action or a, or a clearing or a hard conversation or an apology or even a forgiveness of self or other. And so, um, John, how do we, how do people find you? Like what's, what's the, um, what's, where's, where's John? How, what kind of offers do you have? Like, cause you just dropped so much wisdom, man. I, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to like, I just imagine there's going to be people that want to reach out. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's funny because I've, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching and I've just never marketed any of my services. It's always just been referrals. Totally. I mean, so. I, I could see why. <laughs> <laughs> and which has really been beautiful. And, you know, there is the calling piece you were asking about, like, like where does it come from? And there is that, you know, I think it was Michael Beckwith talks about, like, to me, by me, through me, me and as me mm. in terms of consciousness. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's like, oh, I, th this world is, you know, it's by me. I create it. And then there's the through me where it's just like, I'm channeling. And then there's as me. And so I feel like at this stage, there's stuff that's being called from me, uh, you know, through me. That's not my, what I want to do, quote unquote, like my, you know, ego, my ego self, like I don't want to do that, but there is being asked. So I'm opening up more to doing groups um, i'm actually writing a book now called yeah. essential skills for extraordinary living cool so it's in the process of being written the core blueprint i think you um, maybe you and i talked about this where just putting it out as an audiobook where i can take people through the process because mm 
because I, I I feel like I've been doing the one on one thing, and in my tea practice, what I what the tea has shown me is that in the Tao it talks about, you know, if you receive, you have to give. It's a circuitry, and here I am in these deep, profound ahas in my tea practice, and then where am I giving them? And so it's like the tea is teaching me that there's, you know, stuff that I'm getting, but it has to be given. If I receive it, I have to give it, and I do give it in my one on one work, but just giving it in a in a larger format. So you and I have been talking about me doing a podcast in a while. So this is great. My, this might be holding me accountable. I love it. Start putting this. <laughs> I just, um, you know, putting more of a, an online presence out there and being cool. in the conversation more. So they follow you on Instagram or follow you, go to your website. Yeah, like I'm starting probably. to put stuff on Instagram now. Okay. I, it's been, I've shifted my frame around social. Okay. Yeah. Well, so Mr. John O'Connor, I think is the. All right. Well, well we'll just put the links there and someone can go to your website if they want to reach out and say yeah. thank you. JohnO'Connor.com. That's cool, cool, cool. Um, John, I got one last question for you, bro. Um, so I got well, two questions. One is, in the midst of everything you're doing, go, what's up? Do you have, oh, I thought you were like, you're, you look like you're about to say something. Oh, no, uh, yeah. In yeah. the midst of everything you're doing, how do you stay grounded? But beyond that, I actually want to know, what is one thing that you do every day to help you become more grounded? Well, I think it goes back to um, the tea practice. So when I sit, the first thing that I do is I, I, you know, cause I really feel like it's training your habit of attention and where you place your awareness mm-hmm. and to be able to place your awareness some somewhere and hold it for a long period of time is an essential skill. It's in my book. Uh, so I place, the first thing I do is when I sit, I bring my awareness back into the body and I immediately go back and tune into the ground. And so when my consciousness is connected to the ground, I'm grounded. So it's just really feeling the ground and having that dynamic stillness where my identity is I am grounded. That's who I am. And what do grounded people do? How do they believe? How do they walk? How do they feel? How do they walk through the world? Yeah. Um, so my practice, I sit for an hour to two hours a day. Um, and that just slowing down, coming back into my body, unhooking. Oh, this is maybe a, a technical piece that I do is I imagine every circumstance of my life has a cord and I unhook from them in my tea practice. So I literally unhook from the current circumstances of my life and I step back and then it's almost like I can see in front, I can see my birth and I can see my death and I can see the space before and I can see the space after. So the way that I look at it is I step off my timeline and I unhook from, because like you and I two years ago, our circumstances were very different. Yeah then they will be two years from now. And so our emotional states and our sense of self is dependent on the circumstances. So if I unhook from the circumstances, where am I? Yeah. I'm just back into being. Yeah. I'm in the, in the essence of myself. So like I unhook from my circumstances. And when I do that, I unhook from being a father, being a husband, running a business, my health and wellness, all this stuff. And I'm just being, it's like, it's like there's space, there's time, there's rootedness, there's groundedness. I'm not in all these stories about who I am. I, I'm just, I am. And a lot of people are living in concepts of themselves. Mm. So I find that that dedicated practice daily is essential for staying grounded. And when I don't have that practice, it, I tend to get a little, you know, a little edgy. And so I do feel like it is one of these things where I brush my teeth every day. Otherwise it starts to stink. I think there is a practice that keeps us rooted and grounded. So... That, that to me is great. And then I think also having an open, intimate, loving relationship with my wife helps me stay grounded. 
when that's dysregulated or if we're in tension, that, dude. it's really hard. Oh my God. Totally get it. When, yeah. When, when, when your intimate relationship is not settled, it's very difficult to be set. For me personally, it's very difficult. Totally. I'm, I'm the same way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think good relational hygiene. And Jason Gaddis has a great book, Getting to Zero, just around, oh, shout out to Jason, around how to get to a place of equilibrium yeah. with your partner. Totally, totally. Yeah, we've had Jason on the show a few times. Yeah, cool. He's, 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 he's a stud. Super stud. Brother, thank it's you. Fun. Appreciate you lots. Everybody, that's a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj, and this is your new friend, John, from us. Stay Grounded. Jetson. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Stay Grounded. No matter where you're from or what you're going through, I hope it helps you remember just how incredible you are and have always been. If you're on a path of emotional healing or self-discovery and would like to learn how Liberate can support your journey, head to www.rajana.com forward slash liberate. That is L-I-B-E-R-8 to learn more about our current group programs and one-on-one offerings. I love you guys and I'll see you next week.